According to the World Migration Report, in 2022, one in every 30 people on the planet can be described as international migrants living in a country where they weren't born. Since 1970, the United States has been the main country of destination for international migrants. National Geographic writes, people choose to immigrate for a variety of reasons, such as employment opportunities to escape a violent conflict, environmental factors, or to reunite with family. It's been true for thousands of years, and we'll see some of that tonight. The descendants of Abraham were on the move. They were used to a nomadic lifestyle, but this time they weren't just moving to a new town. They weren't just going to the next hill over to a new grazing area. They were going international. It's a big move. The famine they had been living under for a couple of years and had been threatening their survival, well, it was going to wear on for five more years. And after more than two decades, Jacob was going to be able to reunite with his son Joseph and and all the family was going to finally unite together in a way we haven't seen for many, many passages. In this last great move of Genesis, God appears once more, the final theophany for the patriarchs, and he is going to speak and make promises and give encouragement and accomplish his good purposes in the lives of his people. And he shows us that he's just as involved with them in this passage as he was when he was hanging the planets on their axis in Genesis 1. And what a good reminder for all of us. God is just as involved in your life as he was when he flung the stars into the cosmos. Uh, and when he was developing the systems that, that govern our universe, when he, was, uh, when he was establishing photosynthesis so that plants can do their thing, he's also that involved in your life. He has that much care and tenderness and activity going on in your life. At least that's his desire. So we begin in verse 1, and we read this, Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Jacob would never again see the promised land, not in this life. He pauses in Beersheba to worship God and to offer sacrifices there. It seems that he had some significant hesitation about the trip, even fear. The Lord's going to tell him to not be afraid. It's always a marker that the individual God is speaking to was afraid. Uh, And so he has some real hesitation about leaving Canaan. And we remember that the last time he left Canaan... It wasn't because he wanted to, he was running for his life. He, he was going to be killed by his brother Esau, so he fled uh, to the land of the Arameans, to Padan Aram, uh, where his uncle Laban was, and it didn't work out really well, right? I mean, it was a long time in a bad place and in a bad experience, full of a lot of frustration, um, a lot of conflict. Uh, he was getting cheated. He was cheating people. His w- wives were fighting. It was just not a good scene. And finally, after many, many years, the Lord had come to him and he said, listen, you got to get back to your native land. Get back to Canaan. And he was happy to go. Now, here they are on their way out of Canaan again, and they're headed toward Egypt. And that might be a problem. The, the last time we had heard of Egypt, it was, when, uh, it was when God was telling them, hey, make sure you don't go to Egypt, right? Stay in the promised land. It would make sense that as they take this trip, they would pause and stop in Beersheba for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is the uh, practical southern 
border of the promised land that was given to Abraham and his descendants. You'll see a lot of times in the Old Testament, they will speak of, you know, from, we say from sea to shining sea, they would say from Dan to Beersheba, right? Dan in the north, Beersheba in the south. And so it would make sense that they would stop there sort of before stepping out of their land, their home into the next land. But it was also where Isaac had lived and set up shop. That's where he had settled in Beersheba. And it would have been interesting. Jacob would have paused and camped there. He was familiar with that place, familiar with that land. He would have gone where his family had settled before. And as he was about to make this monumental step out of the land God had promised his family uh, on this big deal trip, he would have looked around and, okay, well, there's the altar that my dad built for the Lord and worshiped him there. And, and there's the tamarisk tree that Abraham, my grandfather, planted. And, and there's the well that he dug. For generations, God had con- connected the future of this family, the purpose of this family with this land. And now there they are, all packed up in their wagons, all of them together with all of their stuff and all of their herds and all of their flocks, and they're making a major long-term move. Jacob knows he's not going to get back to the land. This isn't just a weekend trip over to, you know, Cayucas. This is a long-haul trip. Was this the right thing to do? Jacob must have been thinking about whether he should have been doing this. He also must have been thinking about the prophecy that had been a part of their family for so long that God gave Abraham back in Genesis 15. Let me read part of it to you. God says this to Abraham, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. And now here's Jacob saying, I'm going to take all of us and we're going to go to a foreign land. He must have been uh, really thinking about all these things. And no wonder he was feeling trepidation and hesitation and even fear. Was it all a mistake? This move could be a terrible mistake if it's not ordained by God. One of the kinds of mistakes we've seen the other patriarchs make. As they wait and listen in Beersheba after offering these sacrifices, the Lord arrives in person to reveal and to comfort and to instruct. Verse 2. That night, God spoke to Israel in a vision. Jacob, Jacob, he said. And Jacob replied, here I am. And God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you back. Joseph will close your eyes when you die. I wonder if when he called Jacob's name there in the night, Jacob thought, are we fighting again? Is it that kind of visit? Because the last time I saw you, we had a, like a fist fight for the entire night, and I left hobbled afterwards, you know? I mean, these were real people, and it, they didn't get to open up the Bible and see everything we get to see about God and have all of this revelation that we did. You know, he had a relationship with the Lord, but not in the, you know, blessed, revelatory way that we do. And so he shows up again, and I think Jacob might have had to thought, think, okay, are we wrestling again? What's, what's going to happen? But in Jacob's hour of apprehension and uncertainty, the Lord spoke words of kindness and direction to him. He said, listen, I'm still with you. This is still part of the plan. You don't have to be afraid. You can go not only with my blessing, but I want you to go. It's part of what I'm going to accomplish through your family. 
In fact, God makes it clear here to Jacob that he, God, has taken responsibility for their future. Jacob's wondering, what's going to happen? I'm responsible for all of these descendants. I'm the, the, the patriarch of the family that God has chosen through whom to deliver the Redeemer for all mankind to deal with the problem of sin. And I'm really not sure if I should make this trip. I'm not sure if we should relocate to this new spot. And God says, actually, I'm the one who's responsible for your future. And I'm really serious about your future. And I'm serious about uh, that responsibility and walking with, with you through your life every step of the way. And we see here that God makes three I will statements. Kenneth Matthews writes, the patriarch's God is an I will God. And we see this throughout the Bible. He's our God too. He's an I will God, not you should God. I mean, he, he does tell us you should. There's lots of things we must do. He commands us. But God reveals himself to us as an I will God. He says, I will carry your sins away. And I will uh, accompli- I am the author and finisher of your faith. I will do these things. I will never leave you or forsake you. And because of that, you should follow after me. You should obey me. You should listen to how I'm leading you. And, and walk accordingly. The Lord first said, I will make you into a great nation. It, you know, not as hard as when it was for Abraham. Abraham was just him and Sarah, and he says, you're gonna be a great nation. Kings are gonna come from you. And he's like, I'm a million years old and I have no kids. I'm not sure how that's gonna happen. It wouldn't have been as hard as that, but it would have been hard for Jacob to see how this promise could happen too. Make a great nation. How can my family become a great nation when we're house guests in some other kingdom that's not even our home? Uh, yes, they were several dozen people, but what is that compared to the empires of the world? What is that compared to the empire Esau had been building for himself? We saw that chapters and chapters ago as it closed out the Esau story. And we saw that, man, during this time, he was clawing out an empire for himself and he's conquering people and he's got clans and he's got all this stuff going on. Uh, what are a few dozen people compared to the clans and tribes of Ishmael that were developing? How could they become a nation when they could barely even get along a short time ago, right? These, this is the family that, that is just was constantly at each other's throats, constantly accusing, constantly jockeying for position, selling off brothers, doing this and that, lying to their dad. He, he says, yeah, I love these, this son and this son. I don't really care about any other sons. And so he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of your family. How is the Lord going to do that? Well, with God, it's possible. Because that's how powerful God is. He can take um, a terrible situation and bring beauty from the ashes. You turn to the pages of Exodus 13. It's not that many pages away from, from where we are here. And you see the people of Israel come out millions strong from the kingdom of Egypt. When they start numbering the, the fighting hosts of Israel, 600,000 men who can draw the sword, not counting um, the old, not counting the young, not counting the women or the children, Right? And so the Lord says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. The Lord said, I will go down with you. Jacob knew that God was with him wherever he went. He had declared that when he got back from his time with Laban, he, he called his wives together and he says, listen, I, I know that God has been with me every step of the way. He knew it, but he needed this reminder and we need it too. That's why God gives it to us in his word often. God is always with us. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. God has, if you're a Christian, God has attached himself to you. He has attached himself to your life. Not that you lead him around, but he says, I'm going to dwell inside of your heart. I'm going to take up residence in you. 
That is an amazing thing to consider. We can't wrap our minds around it, but he says that it's true. That reality of God attaching himself to these people was so different than the, what the, the people of Egypt or Canaan worshiped in their gods. The gods of Egypt and Canaan and the gods of, of human religions, they're not like that. The gods of Egypt and Canaan and elsewhere, they, those gods were what, what historians would call territorial, right? They were attached to geographical locations. There's a time in, later in the Old Testament where um, some enemies are fighting against Israel, and it's comical, except for they all get wiped out, but they say, okay, well, the God of the Israelites, he's the God of the hills. That's why we lost this last battle, so let's fight him in the lowlands, and he won't be able to help them. Then they get wiped out again, right? But that's how they understood deities. Well, this is the God of the hills. This is the God of the lowlands. This is the God of this region. This is the God of Egypt. Even think about the Greeks, Poseidon, the God of the sea. You want to go on land, you got to talk to somebody else. He's busy, right? He's, he's in the ocean. You, 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 have to, you have to figure somebody else out. You want to go to war? Okay, well, you got to talk to Mars, the god of war. What does he do when there's not wars on? He figures out how to make wars happen, right? And so that's how men create gods in their own image because we are tied to geographical locations, right? And we are, are, we, you know, identify with where we live and what we do and those sorts of things. And so human beings make gods in those images. And then the God of the Bible comes and he says, no, I'm not a geographical God. I'm not a territorial God. I'm everywhere. I'm always with you. Uh, there's nowhere you can go where you can be out of my presence. But more importantly, I attach myself to you if you'll follow me and, and be my child and, and obey what I have you to do, right? And so, really beautiful. The, the God of Abraham, the God of the Bible, not bound to any location, not bound to a certain kind of activity. He binds himself to his people with cords of love. He comes to us with a covenant of love and a covenant of peace. And even when we make mistakes, you know, Jacob standing in our place as a representative made a lot of mistakes, just like we make mistakes. We follow imperfectly. We are unfaithful at times. But when we are faithless, God remains faithful. His love does not abate. His covenant is still on, even when we bumble around. And that's great news. Third, God said, I will bring you back. That was true, but it's interesting. Jacob would be brought back as a dead man. That's kind of an interesting spin on this promise. And he even says, and Joseph's going to close your eyes. You're going to die in Egypt, but I'm going to bring you back. You're going to come in a casket. And it reminds us that the many promises God has made will not be fulfilled in this life. They wait for us after we step through death into eternity. God has many promises for you in this life. But a lot of the promises he has for you, the best promises about dealing with your sorrow, dealing with your suffering, giving you everlasting life, making all things new, working together all things for the good, those are culminated in eternity once you step through death into the next life. And so it's sort of a reminder there that God's promises are not just for your here and now. You've heard of the book title, Your Best Life Now. It better not be my best life now. I would rather have my best life for all of eternity, please and thank you, right? And that's God's desire as well, while he also has intentions and help and, and promises for the here and now. But there's a second thing here too, and that's that God's work doesn't end with you. It doesn't end with me. 
If we get wiped out by that comment that's coming through tonight and tomorrow, if you know about that, somebody was telling me tonight, there's some cool comment you can see under the Little Dipper. If that comment hit this building and we were all gone, God's work doesn't end because God's work doesn't end with us. It continues. It it continues through our families. It continues through his family that's all over the earth. And so knowing that and understanding that I am the part of an ongoing work of God that is through every generation in all places around the world, a good question to ask is, okay, is my life helping to spiritually benefit those that come after me? Am I part of the ongoing work of the gospel or is my whole life wrapped up in my whole life? Does that make sense? It's really easy for us to wrap up all our days, all of our thinking, all of our efforts, all of our worries in ourselves, what's going to be better for me, how I'm feeling, what I need, what I would like to do, and forget that I'm supposed to be a part of something bigger than myself. I'm supposed to be a part of the ongoing work of the body of Christ, the church universal that doesn't end with me, that doesn't end in Hanford, that goes on and on until God brings an end to human history. And uh, scholars will tell us too here that God used some uh, interesting grammar where he says, uh, I myself will certainly. It's one of those things that God loves to do. It's not necessarily proper grammar. It'll get you marked down in school. But he wants Jacob to know. He doesn't just say, uh, yeah, I'll take care of it. Have you ever told somebody, have you ever heard somebody tell that? You say, hey, this and this is happening. I'll I'll take care of it. And you're like, I don't think you're going to take care of it, right? He doesn't say it in passing. But if, if you said, hey, I've got this problem, I need some help, and if the person came and looked at you in the eyes and they said, hey, listen, I, I myself, I am certainly myself going to take care of that. You'd be like, oh, okay, this person's going to take care of me. That's great. And that's what God is doing. He says, I want you to know. It's me, I, myself, certainly, I am going to do it. What a great thing to see that Jacob stopped to worship and inquire of the Lord at this great uh, junction of his life. It was a big deal that they were moving out of the promised land. And he had hesitation about it. And, and he was wondering if this is really the right spiritual decision to make for his family. Of course, he, Jacob, wanted to go see Joseph. I mean, he wanted that more than anything emotionally in his heart. But it was so great to see him kind of pause and say, okay, but does God want me to go see Joseph? He was making a major life decision here, not just moving out of town, not just moving out of state, moving out of country, moving out of the promised land. And it's a very good thing that he stopped to wait on the Lord and hear from the Lord and ask the Lord for his direction and his opinion. God has an opinion about what you should be doing in your life and where you should be doing it and with whom you should be doing it. And he, because he paused to worship and to inquire of the Lord, he was able to receive incredible encouragement and certainty and better promises than ever before, along with the peace of God that he was doing what the Lord wanted him to do. Verse 5, Jacob left Beersheba. The sons of Israel took their father Jacob in the wagons Pharaoh had sent to carry him, along with their dependents and their wives. They also took their cattle and possessions they had acquired in the land of Canaan, And Jacob and all of his offspring with him came to Egypt, his sons and grandsons, his daughters and granddaughters. Indeed, all his offspring he brought with him to Egypt. The family didn't exactly do what Pharaoh suggested. If you were here for that study, you remember that in chapter 45, Pharaoh said, don't worry about your belongings. Don't be concerned about your stuff at all. Just get in the wagons and come. Now, 
on the one hand, maybe Pharaoh was just being polite and kind of explaining to them, hey, you're going to have the best of the stuff here in Egypt. On the other hand, that's the king saying, I don't want you to bring your possessions here. But could they really show up to Egypt with no stuff, right? Hey, we're here. We need a place to stay. Also clothes, also tools, also furniture, also toothbrushes. We need it all, right? And so it's kind of a, a, a gap between what Pharaoh explicitly told them and what they do here. But there's some tact to consider. We're told in verse 5 that the sons took Joseph and the wives and the kids. They're doing sort of the heavy lifting, uh, logistically speaking. At this point, Jacob is 130 years old, hobbled by his wrestling match with the Lord 30 years prior. In those earlier scenes of Jacob's life, he was the one who took his family. It's interesting. The the wording here is the same. It says the sons of Israel took their father. And before we saw it was Jacob who took his sons, Jacob who took his wives and he moved them across rivers and he moved them over the hills and through the woods and everything. But he's not as strong as he had been, not by a long shot. And he was the decider of what the family would do, but the sons were the operatives in this sense. And so as they move together, we see this beautiful picture of of gracious unity and cooperation in a way that we haven't seen in this family in a really long time. And so here we see this picture, young and old, weak and strong, everybody's moving together. No one is complaining about the pace. No one is arguing about the seating arrangements. It's a good reminder of how a spiritual family can work together, sharing responsibility, being mindful of each other's strengths and weaknesses. Everyone has a spot and a role as we all journey onward. That's a great picture for us devotionally speaking. The rest of our passage tonight is a list of Jacob's family members. This should just be a rollicking good time. Let's take it all at once and then pull out a few thoughts. I'm going to do my level best. Verse 8, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Jacob's firstborn, Reuben. Reuben's sons, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. Simeon's sons, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Levi's sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Judah's sons, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. Issachar's sons, Tola, Puva, Jashub, and Shimron. Zebulun's sons, Sered, Elon. There we go. That's our, that's our, our current event. Uh, and Jaleel. These were the sons of, uh, these were Leah's sons born to Jacob and paid in Aram as well as his daughter Dinah. The total number of persons, 33. Gad's sons, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Erodai, Erali, Asher's sons, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beria, or Beriah, and their sister, Sira. Beriah's sons were Heber and Malkiel. These were the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, that she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. Manasseh and Ephraim were born to Joseph in the land of Egypt. They were born to him by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, a priest at On. Benjamin's sons, Bela, Beaker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppim. That's where the Muppets came from. Huppim and Ard. These were Rachel's sons who were born to Jacob. Fourteen persons. Dan's sons, Hushim. Naphtali's sons, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, Shillem. These were the sons of Bilhah, who, uh, whom J- uh, Laban gave to his daughter Rachel. She bore Jacob seven persons. The total number of persons belonging to Jacob 
his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons who came to Egypt, 66, and Joseph's sons who were born to him in Egypt, two persons, all those of Jacob's household who came to Egypt, 70 persons. Okay. Now, the number here of the group is actually controversial for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's clear that the names listed do not include all of Jacob's descendants. For example, in verse 7 of this text, we're told that Jacob brought daughters, plural, to Egypt and granddaughters, but only one daughter is named and only one granddaughter is named. We're told that Leah's group was 33 people, but count it as many times as you want. Uh, I, had a, I, I had to count it like a billion times because I kept thinking, I must be missing something, but count it as many times as you want. There are only 32 names of living people. Now, some count Leah herself as part of that group of 33, but we'll be told in chapter 49 that she's dead and buried. Plus, Bilhah, Rachel, and Zilpah are not included in their count, so it would be inconsistent to count Leah. It gets more complicated when you turn over to Acts chapter 7, and Stephen, the first martyr of the church, he says that 75 people were in the group, not 70. So what's going on here? Does the Bible play fast and loose with numbers like this? And if this number isn't literal, then why should I believe that the seven days of creation or the 1260 days in the Great Tribulation discussed in Revelation 11 and 12, why are those literal? How can we pick and choose what is and isn't literal, what is and isn't figurative? There are times when the Bible uses numbers figuratively and there are times when it uses numbers literally. Or maybe a better term than figuratively is typologically, where the number is standing for something, is representing something, rather than being a specifically literal number. There are times when that happens. If we have no indication or contextual reason to see a number as figurative or typological, then we should interpret it as literal. It's the same as the rule of prophecy. Right? If you see a vision in the Bible or a prophecy or something like that, if you have no reason contextually to find it uh, uh, figurative, then you should interpret it as true and literal as something that is specifically going to happen. Same thing on numbers here. The text is giving us clear signals as we read it that the number 70 might be understood as approximate or figurative or typological. And that's okay. It's not a trick. It's not a failure of Scripture. It's not like some, aha, look, look, we've proved that, you know, there's a contradiction. That's not what's happening at all. Here's an example. How many tribes of Israel are there? Twelve, right? Because you get to numbers, and at one point, God says to, to Moses, he says, okay, Moses, take one staff from each of the leaders of the ancestral tribes, 12 staffs from all the leaders of the tribes, right? Because there are 12 tribes of Israel. Except there aren't 12 tribes of Israel because you get into numbers two and three and you know what you read? You're, they're told, he tells the tribes of Israel how to camp around the tabernacle and he says, camp four in the north, four in the south, four in the east, four in the west, one in the middle. That's not 12, it's 13. Right? Because we know that Joseph, the tribe of Joseph, is not really a thing. It's his two sons, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And so we look at that and we say, well, 
well, yeah, we know, you know, yeah, but it's the tribe of Joseph, except for it's not the tribe of Joseph. Where's the tribe of Joseph referenced in comparison to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh? And when you count throughout the Old Testament how many tribes you are, there are, we say, well, there's 12 because you don't count Levi. Okay, but they're a tribe, right? And so we understand that there's something else going on here. We understand that there's a bunch of context, there's a bunch of detail, there's a bunch of history wrapped up here, and we can understand that when they say the 12 tribes of Israel, and then someone counts in Numbers 2, I am counting 4 plus 4 plus 4 plus 4 plus 1, that's 13. No matter what the word was that I was saying, right? That's 13 tribes. And so it makes sense to us. It's contextual. It's understandable. There's a good reasoning for it. So here in, in, in Genesis 46, we see this number 70, and scholars and commentators and people look at it and they say, we got, we got some issues here because it's not 70. And so the text is giving us many clues that the number 70 can be understood in an approximate or a typological sense. Not only are the daughters not all accounted for, even though they're referenced and they're specifically not counted, but we're also specifically told that the daughters-in-law who were part of the group and were in the caravan, they were not counted. It says, hey, I'm not counting the daughters-in-law. 70 people went. Okay, so obviously it's speaking typologically, figuratively. Eric Burroughs writes this, the number 70 is used principally to denote natural groups of individuals in a family, human or divine. The number 70 signifying the ideal totality of an earthly or divine family is found in several different cultures. Nahum Sarna writes this, there is no way of satisfactorily solving the problem and reconciling the differences unless 70 is understood here to be a typological rather than a literal number. It is here used as elsewhere in the Bible to express the idea of totality. So the idea is that no one from the family of faith was left behind. Everybody went together. They all made a trip. There was nobody who was like, I'm gonna hang out back. When we come to a number like the seven days of creation or the seven years of the tribulation. We see in those passages, those numbers are meticulously given with the rending, in some cases, of hours, weeks, months, and years. You look at the tribulation, in different passages speaking about the great tribulation, it is referenced as weeks, it is referenced as days, it is referenced as months, it is referenced as years, and they always add up to the same amount. And so it's being given to us specifically and precisely so that we can understand the literalness of that timing. And so if someone tries to throw this 70 number at you and say, there you go, the Bible is contradicting itself. You can know it's not a contradiction. There's a context to understand. The Bible is very upfront about it. And when someone says the numbers in the Bible are all figurative, because look here, and so because of that, you know, the seven-day creation is not literal and the seven-year tribulation, that's not literal. You can know why that is different than this, right? Because the Bible is not trying to hide things from you, but it is a very intricate book with a whole lot going on. Now, going through these names, it's interesting to see what an assorted group it was. All of them were connected to God through Abraham, yes, but some came from an Aramean background on the mom's side. Some came from an Egyptian background. Some came from a Canaanite background. Some grew up in favored status. Others grew up totally unappreciated. Jamin was named Lucky. Hushim was named Hasty. Elon means Oak. Gershon means Outcast. Beaker means Young Camel. Tola means Little Worm. Thanks, Mom and Dad. 
Eri means worshiper of Jehovah. Ashbel means worshiper of Baal. Muppim means anxieties. Jaleel means hope of God. There's such a wide variety of here because these are real people. You would expect that in a group of 70 people. Look at our group here. Not, not as many, but roughly a large group. And there's a lot going on, a lot of people, a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different circumstances, a lot of different experiences going on. And the Lord brings them all together. And the list shows us that God takes all kinds. He's not looking for just one background or one kind of person or one level of status or anything like that. He wanted all of these people to be a part of his plan, all of them to be a part of his drama of redemption. Sadly, not all of them would follow him in that plan. Many would, but not all. By the time of the book of Numbers, some of these lines didn't exist anymore. For others and from others would come servants in the Lord's house, judges for the people, kings and craftsmen and poets and prophets. One commentator remarked that these verses are a kind of inventory for the trip, and that's true. But you know what's so great? The inventory of the trip isn't stuff, it's people. It was people that mattered to God, not the cargo, not the flocks. We get no list of how many sheep they had, how many cattle they had, how many goats they had. He said, no, here are the people that were there and here are their names because that's what God cared about. He didn't care about the gold or the jewels or the herds they had accumulated. It was these people and they each counted just like you count to the Lord. You may not come from the favored family. You may have a background of questionable circumstance, but to the Lord, You're a son or daughter that counts and that is on a journey with him. And he can bring power and praise and testimony and glory from your life, just like he could bring David from Hezron, Ehud from Gera, Samuel from Ephraim. That's what God wants to do in your life. And as you migrate through life with the Lord as a stranger and sojourner in this world, seek the Lord for his direction He has a definite opinion on where he wants you to be and when he wants you to be there and who he wants you to be around. He's gonna be with you every step of the way, making great spiritual fruit in your life that can have a lasting impact long after you've stepped into eternity. So wait on him, listen to him, follow after him. And now let's worship him. Let's pray and we'll sing.